This morning I thought we'd start um, as sort of a jumping off point for this new series to look at uh, one of the most profound examples of Jesus, of uh, God exposing himself to a person in human history. In fact, what God does here in the desert of Horeb, which means desolate, is something that had a profound influence not only on Moses and his generation, but also generations uh, since then, and we'll talk about that. Begin reading in chapter 3 of Exodus, beginning in verse 1. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in the flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush is not burning, or burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then the Lord said, Do not come near. Take off your sandals, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the, the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, and I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, I will be with you, and this shall be a sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people of Egypt or out of Egypt, you will serve God on this mountain. Did you hear about the woman who decided to change dentists? And so she went for her first appointment to a new dentist, and as she sat in the waiting room, she looked at the wall, and there were all of his diplomas, and she saw that every name on every diploma was the same, and she began to think, hey, I think I know that name. In fact, there was a guy that I went to high school with who was named exactly the same name. And I remember him. He was tall and dark and handsome, and all the girls thought he was wonderful. I can't imagine it could be the same guy, but maybe. But then when the dentist appeared, she thought to herself, no way. He's tall, but he's not dark anymore. In fact, he's gray, and his hair is too, at least the hair that's left. And so she went in and had her appointment, and when it was over, she said to him, for whatever reason, did you happen to uh, go to Morgan Park High School? He said, yeah, I'm a Mustang. She said, well, when did you graduate? He said, 1969, why do you ask? She said, you were in my class. 
He said to her, what did you teach? I mean, it was innocent. You know, it's interesting, when you get to this chapter in Exodus, chapter 3, Moses is 80 years old. In fact, two-thirds of his life have elapsed. He's an old man. Half of his life he's lived in desperation and despair. He's been on the run. Remember, at 40, he killed an Egyptian because he had seen the affliction of his people and heard their cries. And so here he is, a shepherd. Think of it. He was raised as a city dweller. The Egyptians were known throughout antiquity as being the greatest builders of cities. And yet here, he's nowhere near a city. He's in the wilderness, near a mountain that is named Horeb, which means desolate. He is in a desolate, dark place. And the Lord shows up. You know, years ago, way, way back, I was in Geneva, Switzerland, And one of the places I made sure that I went to was the Reformer's Wall because there in this wall of marble are four carvings of four different men, Reformers, from the head to the feet. They're all there, carved in marble. There's John Calvin. He was the bishop, as it were, of Geneva. And then next to him was Theodore Beza, who took over for Calvin in Geneva. And next to Beza was William Farrell, And then next to William Farrell, there was John Knox, who God used to bring sound biblical theology to the British Isles. Every one of those men, in their own separate way, had an encounter with God. They were living in lives of desperation and despair, and yet they had this revelation that the gospel had to be recovered, that the church had lost its way and it needed to be reformed back to the center. And as I stood and I looked at those men in person rather than in pictures, I was impressed. But you know what most impressed me? Were the three Latin words that were carved in the marble below them, post tenerus lux, after darkness, Light. After centuries of spiritual darkness, after centuries of man-made formulations, they had come to recognize the gospel again. It wasn't by our efforts. It was by divine grace. It was by all of the efforts and the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And they called the people of Geneva and the people of France and the people of all of Europe and the people of the British Isles, even stretching all the way down to Rome, back to the gospel. And I think it's interesting. When they picked a symbol from the Bible to represent the discovery that God had enabled them to make. They didn't pick the empty tomb. They didn't pick a wooden cross. They picked the burning bush. After darkness, light. You know, the burning bush is only mentioned twice in the Old Testament. Once in the text we just read, the third chapter of Exodus, And then in Deuteronomy 33, when Moses is speaking on his last days, 
He speaks to the sons of Joseph and he says, May you be blessed with the favor of him who dwells in the bush. Now, folks, this is 40 years later. And yet he pronounces a blessing on the children of Israel. May the God who I saw and heard in the burning bush, may he bless you with his favor. Now the word for dwell, the God who dwells in the bush, the word for dwell is Shekinah. And you ask a lot of Christians, what's Shekinah mean? And they'll say glory, and it's not true. The word Shekinah means to dwell. And what happens when the Shekinah, the dwelling of God, is among us, there is full glory. Isn't it interesting? John says in the first chapter of his gospel, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, full of grace and truth, full of glory. So what Moses is saying when he pronounces his blessing is, may the God who dwells in the bush, may the God who demonstrated himself to me, may he dwell with you. What kind of dwelling is that? Well, it's a light that cannot be extinguished. It's a light that is so powerful it doesn't change in its intensity. It never wavers. May God who never changes dwell with you. Now I would remind you the first 40 years of Moses' life were a bit of a cakewalk. I mean, after he got out of the bulrushes. <laughs> he ends up in the palace of Pharaoh. He's nursed by Pharaoh's wife's nurses. He eats at Pharaoh's table. He participates in the glory of Egypt. There was no nation in the world at that time that had greater glory, built more fabulous cities. Gold was their color. And yet here, 40 years later, he's on the backside of a desert. For 40 years, he lived in earthly splendor. For 40 years, he's tended sheep. Can you imagine his self-concept? Can you imagine how desperate he must be? And the reason he's there is because he killed an Egyptian. He's scared to death. A city dweller? The son of Pharaoh? Tending sheep? The Egyptians hated shepherds. And yet Moses has become one. And then the Bible says one day he sees a bush on fire. Now that's not unusual in the desert. Spontaneous combustion. What made it different was this bush did not burn up. It wasn't consumed. The fire was just as intense. And so the Bible says he says to himself, I'm going to go over and check this out. And when he does... The Lord calls out of the bush, Moses, Moses, don't come any closer. Take off your sandals. Somebody who hasn't come here in a while said, what's the deal with these sandals? It's summer, but it fits perfectly. Take off your sandals <laughs> because the ground on which you stand is holy because I'm there. Now think of the difference 
Sociologists would call it cognitive dissonance. I mean, you kind of think one thing and yet all of a sudden something totally different hits you. Every god that Moses would have known from his Egyptian days were shrouded in darkness. Think Wizard of Oz. Behind the curtain, in the darkness, in the clouds. And yet here, the only God shows up as light that never goes out. He comes, God does, and meets Moses right in the midst of his desolation, right in the midst of his darkness, right in the midst of his despair. He meets him and he teaches him four lessons. The same four lessons he, teached, he taught every one of those, or teached, every one of those reformers. In fact, they're the same four lessons that underlie every exposure God ever makes in the Scriptures. And we're going to be looking at 12 of them. Next week, God shows up as a whirlwind. Why? Because that's exactly what Job needs. The week after, he shows up in a different way. He shows up as a wrestler. He shows up as a cry. He shows up as a general. So why does he show up here as as light that doesn't go out because Moses has walked in darkness. He needs the light. And when he shows up, he shows, teaches Moses four things about himself, the same four things that underlie what he teaches Job and Jacob and Joshua and Elijah, Sarah, Hagar, all the people we're going to look at. In fact, I would submit to you that he teaches these same four things to every one of us every time he shows up in the midst of our darkness. So let's dig in. First of all, notice the identity. Look at verse 6. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now this is not the first time he said this. He shows up and speaks to Moses' great grandfather Levi and he says the same thing. He said the same thing to his grandfather Koath. He said the same thing to his father Amran. And it's popular for biblical commentators to look at this when God says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to say what God is saying is, I'm the God who makes a covenant. I made a promise and I don't change. And while that's true, that's only a part of it. You see, when God shows up to Moses, he uses a name for himself that he never had used before. It's a name that he'll use 7,000 times in the Bible, but he never mentions this name until here. Two verses earlier, the Bible says, when the Lord, that is Elohim, which means strong one, common name for God, when the Lord saw Moses turn aside to see, Jehovah called to him out of the bush. Moses, Moses, come no closer. Take off your sandals for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. Now he'll mention that name 
for that name will be mentioned 7,000 times in the Bible, but this is the first. Jehovah said, Moses, Moses. Do you know what the name Jehovah means? It means helper, savior, deliverer. So think of what he's saying to Moses. I've come here to save you. I've come here to help you. I've come here to deliver you from your darkness. You know, it's amazing to me about Jehovah's Witnesses. They got the Jehovah part and maybe the witness, but they don't put those things together. The name Jehovah means Savior, Deliverer, and His name is Jesus. So God shows up and says, Moses, Moses, come no closer. The place on which you stand is holy ground. I am the God of your father. I'm the God of Abraham. Think of what that means by saying I'm the God of Abraham. Remember who Abraham was? He was a stargazer from Ur of the Chaldees. He was a Chaldean. He was as far away from the God of Israel as you could get. He was a man of nobility among foreign pagans. And yet the Lord says to him, I'm calling you from your father and from his household. Go and I will show you the land that I will give you. There was nothing in Abraham to commend him to God. There was nothing in him that was righteous and noble when it came to spiritual truth, and yet God said, you are my man. You know what this means. I'm the God of Abraham. In other words, Moses, I'm the God who makes choices. And you will be my man. Second, he says, I'm the God of Isaac. Do you remember who Isaac was? His parents were called in the Scriptures as good as dead. They weren't dead, but they could have been dead because they couldn't bear children. In fact, when God shows up and speaks to Abraham as three men, He says to Abraham, I'm telling you the truth. I told you this before. I'm reinforcing it now. You will become a father. Your wife, Sarah, will bear a son within a calendar year. Remember what Sarah does? She hears this and she laughs. Now, until this series, I thought I knew why she laughed. Until I started studying, I thought I knew. I didn't know. There's so much more to it than she laughed because she knew she couldn't bear children. And we'll talk about that in about eight weeks. That's the tease. (laughs) But in all of the Old Testament, there is no greater foreshadowing of the resurrection of Jesus than the birth of Isaac. Life out of death. What's that mean for Moses? Moses, you must think you're a dead man out here in the wilderness taking care of sheep. But I want to tell you, I've showed up. Not only to tell you that I've chosen you, but to tell you I'm a God who brings life out of death. And then he continues, I'm the God of Jacob. Notice he doesn't say I'm the God of Israel. He says I'm the God of Jacob, which means what? Well, what does Jacob mean? Conniver, crook, schemer, sinner. 
What God is saying is, no matter what your failing, no matter what your deficit, no matter what your sin, no matter where your heart is, I am your God and I will never let you go. Now, can you think of a greater message to receive when you're on the backside of the desert? When for 40 years all you can think about is who's running after you. What a greater message than that. That Lord, you've come to me and you've chosen me. Not because I'm good, but because you are. You're a God who brings life out of death and boy, I felt dead. And you're a God who says no matter who I am, I am yours forever. You know, about 20 years ago, a man by the name of Art DeMoss died. He was a famous, wealthy Christian. He used his wealth for the gospel's sake. And anytime someone would say to him, Art, how are you doing? He'd always say, better than I deserve. Now, Dave Ramsey uses that all the time, but he got it from Art DeMoss. It's a great retort, how are you, better than I deserve. Why would he say that? Because he knew. He knew what the reformers came to know, the identity of God. He's a God who makes choices. He's a God who brings life out of death. He's a God who will never leave his people ever, no matter what. Second, Moses learns the insight of God. Look at verse 7. Then the Lord said, I've surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I've heard their cry because of their taskmasters. Now think of what Moses must imagine at this point. Forty years earlier, he had seen the affliction of God's people. He had heard their cries, and as a result, he took things into his own hands, and he killed an Egyptian. And what was the price of that? To live in bondage for 40 years. He had to flee from Egypt. He lost everything. He had murdered a man and he had to run. But here, the Lord says, I've come down because I've seen the affliction of my people and I've heard their cry. And guess what? I'm going to use you to deliver them from bondage. When you did it your way, you got into bondage. You're going to now do it my way. And you're going to be, bring freedom out of bondage. The result is not a retreat into darkness. It's an escape from it. Here the Lord says, I have seen, I have heard. And the result is freedom and light. Every time God shows up, And he calls us by name. He says, Moses, Moses. Remember what Moses' names means? Drawn out one, delivered one. He says, Moses, Moses, I'm going to draw you out of the wilderness. I'm going to draw you out of your bondage. I'm going to draw you out of your darkness. And you will be a deliverer. No wonder the reformers picked the burning bush as a symbol of the Reformation. For they knew God's insight. He sees and he hears and he acts. Third, notice the incarnation. Look at verse 8. The Lord says to Moses, I have come down to deliver them. 
Now, a few weeks ago, we talked about Sodom and Gomorrah, you may remember, and the Lord shows up to to Abraham, and before he leaves, he says, should I reveal to Abraham what I'm going to do? And God says, yes, and he said, okay, Abraham, here's what I'm going to do. I've heard the cry, and I'm going to go take a look and see for myself. He comes down to look, and when he looks, he destroys But here, he comes down because he's already seen, he's already heard, and he comes down not to destroy but to deliver. You know the biggest difference between the real God and every other false God? Every other false God must be found. And every religious system has a way of finding that God. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob doesn't need to be found. He finds us. And this is the first time he announces it. He says, I've seen the affliction of my people. I've heard their cries. I've come down so that they might come out or up. You see, when you tried to do it, they got deeper and deeper into their bondage. But now I've come to lift them out of it. No wonder the reformers. No wonder the reformers picked the burning bush as the symbol. They knew that just as God came down to Moses, He really came down to us in Jesus Christ. And though we tried to deliver ourselves, we got deeper and deeper into the weeds. He came down to us to lift us up. After darkness, light. And then fourth and finally, notice the interest. Look at verse 8 again. I've come down to deliver them out of the land of the Egyptians, to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land. Now notice how he describes it. The word good there can better be translated new. I've come to deliver them into a new land. Not an improved Egypt. But a new land, a brand new land, a land you've never experienced before. Secondly, not only is it new, it's also broad. Now, some translate that word spacious. And it kind of gets you in mind of a big size place. But really, what that word means is a land of liberty, a land of freedom, a land where there is no bondage. It's free. You can roam wherever you want to roam. And then third, he says, it's a land flowing with milk and honey. You know what that Hebrew word best is translated as? Oozing. I'm going to bring you into a new land, a broad land, an oozing land. You know, about 30 years ago, I really learned what oozing was all about. I had a friend who had an appendectomy, and that isn't unusual. But he had six kids. And they lived on a farm, and he was a dairy farmer. And because he had six kids, his milking schedule was 3 a.m. and and, and 3 p.m. And so my friend and I stupidly said, we'll take care of the dairy farm. Neither one of us had ever been in a dairy farm. And so for two weeks, neither of us slept much 
to milk the cows at three meant you had to get there no later than midnight. You didn't leave until about seven in the morning and you had to be back about noon. I learned two things those two weeks. One, dairy farmers ought to be the highest paid people in the world. And the second thing I learned was that when cows are ready to give milk, they'll ooze. You say, how do you know? It's utterly clear. (laughs) I mean, you got to get them into the barn and you got to get ready to go. Now, that's exactly what God's saying to Moses. The land I'm going to give you is going to ooze with milk and honey. Not only will all your wants be satisfied, but many, all your needs will too. It is a new land. It is a free land. It is an oozing land that will ooze with everything you could possibly want. And then he adds one more thing. I will never, ever leave you. I will be there. Which means it's also a holy land. No wonder the reformers picked the burning bush as a symbol of the Reformation. Because what the Lord teaches Moses at this bush is something that he'll continue to teach him for the next 40 years. This bush is so important to Moses that even on his dying days, he's giving a blessing and he's saying, may you know the presence of the one who dwells in the bush. After darkness, light. It always works that way. Can you think of a better description of the Christian life than new, free, oozing, with His presence every moment of every day? You see, whenever God exposes Himself, something else happens. We become exposed to ourselves. Do you think that burning bush had anything to do with Moses and his situation? It had everything to do with it. Do you think God showed up as an unquenchable fire because Moses needed to see it? You bet he did. Do you think God addressed everything that Moses knew about himself at that moment? Yes, he did. Do you think that everything God said to Moses that God would do through Moses is exactly what Moses desired to have happen? You bet it was. Moses, 40 years ago, you tried it on your own way. Now in the last third of your life, you're going to try it my way. And you know what? You're going to make mistakes. And you're going to fail. And you're going to lie. And you're going to get scared. But be of good courage. You are mine. And I will take you over. That's the beginning of our series. We'll look at Job next week. Think about this. Amen.